This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Previously on Electric Boogaloo. How old is Rickon again? He's like three or something. He's not going to take care of the dog. Who's going to take care of Rickon's dog, right? Nobody's thinking about that. We're listening to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm Anthony, and I'll be joined this week by Dr. Jana Matthews, a real-life medievalist. She is a professor of medieval literature, and she has all sorts of insight into how Game of Thrones connects to the medieval world, both literature and culture. My interview with Jana covered Catelyn's chapter, that's this week, and we'll bring her back next week to talk about Danny's first POV chapter. And I'll also include a brief excerpt of my conversation with Chad Carmichael. And Chad will be coming back week four to talk about Ned Stark. In between Jana and Chad, we'll check in with Steve, who's just watched The King's Road. That's episode two of the HBO adaptation. And I really think we're going to hook Steve into this. I think we're going to get Steve on board with Game of Thrones. So without further ado, here is the first part of my interview with Dr. Jana Matthews. All right. Hey, I, I think we should talk about our voices. I love I loved to talk about the thing that probably strikes the, uh, the listener first. Okay. And that is they're not seeing us, but they're hearing our voices and forming judgments about us based <laughs> on our voices. So what is your relationship to your own voice? I think just about everybody hates their own voice. I was, uh, it, I mean, I think that's sort of a, it's not a universal thing. I almost, I think, no, I think people don't think about their voice until, and then when they do, they realize how much they hate their own voice. Well, I have a lot of opportunities to, to muse and to meditate about how awful my voice is. And thanks to my teenage daughter who like all teenage girls tend to pick up their parents. And so uh-huh. she, you know, among many things that annoy and irritate her, she told me last week that I have an annoying voice. And so um, I think that cued me in to the fact that my voice was particularly horrible. But then when I was preparing for this podcast and realizing that everyone was going to, it would be permanently, you know, in this circulated out there, then then again, right, Mike. Let's be fair. (laughs) You, you, You probably reserve your most annoying voice for your teenage daughter. That is 100% true. Right. Yeah. No, there, there's no doubt. When I hear myself <laughs> talking to my kids, I'm thinking, who is this person talking? I, who, I know. Who just said those words? Yeah. Right. It's the appropriation of the mom voice, which I think is probably annoying in any language or vocabulary. <laughs> All right. So my voice, I, I mean, I, I know where I got my voice. I got my voice from from Italians that forgot they were Italians in Northern California. Mm. So in instead of eating uh, Italian good Italian food, we were eating like tacos and whatnot. What What about you? you where did you get your voice? Um, I well, so I'm from Los Angeles. Okay. 
but I, most of my family is sort of on both sides came from, came from Utah. You know, Utahns have a very distinct and clear kind of like it accent that comes from this sort of insular community that dates back to pioneers and Mormons crossing the plains. You got your voice from Brigham Young. Is what I did. I, I, well, and Brigham Young got it from God. So therefore, <laughs> I, I am directly sort of speaking you know, in the voice of God. That's what I like to tell people when they call me out on my YouTube. Well, I am honored to have you on. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Okay. Hey, I, I need to ask you a question. Sure. And, and I know that your expertise ranges beyond medieval literature to, mm-hmm. to other areas, like, like psychology of leadership and whatnot. So <laughs> I need to ask you, why... Why do I love this book so much? And and if it continues to hurt me and I keep coming back, is there something wrong? Is this a dysfunctional relationship I have with the Game of Thrones? Well, I think if you're in a dysfunctional relationship, then I think that you are, are definitely not alone and you are plagued with the same kind of right illness that, that plagues most of society, contemporary society right now. And I, I, But I think that the Game of Thrones really resonates with so many people across the board and ac- across so many walks of life. I mean, it's not only popular, obviously, in the U.S., but it's enormously popular in the Middle East and Asia. And the, you know, one of the reasons, I think, is because it, it, it pulls so much from history and from world history. And yes. so there's a, there's a place in which everyone, when you read this text, suddenly feels like it's speaking directly to them or their ancestors or what they happen to study in school or their favorite mm-hmm. You know, historical figure, and and um, and it, it bring it also allows us to bring out the inner nerd, and we all have that in us. And mm-hmm. but just sometimes that this is a text that sort of particularly relishes and, and it enjoys that. Right, absolutely. And I think that sometimes we find ourselves in certain characters that maybe it surprises us, like, oh, geez, I'm a lot like this person, and this person is not a nice person. Or you start to develop, you know, sort of favorites among the characters. Absolutely. So we are going to talk about chapter two, the first point of view chapter of Catelyn Stark. So, Jana, if you'll permit me, I'm going to go ahead and give a synopsis of the of the Catelyn chapter. Okay. And we can fill in the gaps. Anything that I miss, I'm sure we can fill in in our conversation. Sounds good. So Catelyn we learn is a person from the South. She's a person from House Tully and she's been in the North uh, married to Ned Stark and she's living in Winterfell, but she still doesn't quite feel at home in the Godswood. And that's where we find her. She's walking into the Godswood and uh, she's looking for Ned to deliver uh, some pretty bad news. She finds Ned in that sort of iconic image under the heart tree, um, sharpening ice and she feels out of place and he he's a little taken aback to actually see her in this place because the place kind of scares her and they have a little exchange and then she breaks the news to him that his sort of surrogate father john arn is dead and we see that that key event is going to motivate all kinds of different characters in all kinds of different ways and the plot will unfold from this particular event that's the chapter in a nutshell Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, you probably have a longer relationship with Catelyn, probably a decade-long relationship with Catelyn. Yeah. But going back to this first introductory chapter, how do you encounter her in this seminal way? 
So I think it's important to preface that, we, as we mentioned earlier, you know, Game of Thrones is, is a text that engages people across the spectrum because it has the ability to, I think everything is ultimately related to your upbringing, background, educational perspective, and, and so on and so forth. And it mm-hmm. just has a, a multivalence text that allows and encourages that um, multiplicity of voices and perspectives. And so mm. a lot of what you're going to get today is uh, the medievalist in me coming out, you know, and sure. as I read a text that is um, that sort of as someone who specializes in medieval lit and history and culture, and particularly European history and culture, a lot of my thoughts and perspectives will sort of draw back and, and make the claim, either implicitly or explicitly, that Martin is pulling from medieval, both medieval lore and um, and text. So I can just give some insights yes. from that perspective, and then well, I well, that's then, right. Yeah. In fact, you're not you're not just meeting Catelyn in the Godswood or meeting Ned in the Godswood. They're kind of meeting you in in your own academic placement. Right. Absolutely. Right. right. So, it, so we're yes. these characters and us. So we're we're mutually informative at this point. Right? Absolutely. And, and so, one thing I can say, you know, maybe outside of the realm of academia, is that as you mentioned, you know, you've got Catelyn who's from the south and and moves up to the north. And and one of the reasons why she is such a kind of a, a seminal and important figure, particularly for women, is that you you get right from the get go that she obviously loves her husband and she's made peace with the fact that she has to live in the north, but she doesn't love it. And mm. so, like many women. And historically speaking, you don't have to go back to the Middle Ages to find this, but you know, these are women who are kind of more or less like ripped from their ancestral homelands because of marriage. They've had to leave their family and they have to participate in the life of their family from afar. And in this case, it's by messages that are sent back and forth from, you know, this is sort of a pre-cell phone community. <laughs> right. and, and and so I think that that right away you get the sense that she is embody a Stark, and she has made and she has made a commitment to be um, in this marriage and to support her family. But there's a you know there's a psycho psychological rift there. There's an emotional rift there, and there's also a cultural rift between her family and between her husband's family that that gets illuminated right out from the the get go in regards to religion. And, and we can talk a little bit about that. But yeah, um, I, I one thing I, I wanted to say is like we encounter her at first in a garden. And it's, well, it's Godswood. And she immediately reminisces and goes back and thinking nostalgically about what the garden looks like in River Run, right. in her homeland. And it's filled with redwoods and birds and, you know, scent of flowers. And, you know, right. the, the, you know, you're from California and probably from Redwood Territory up north. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it sort of seems like this Edenic paradise that is crafted in the likeness of Northern California. <laughs> you know, to be, right. Uh, right. And, and for the national well, it's parks there. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't realize till just now. And I totally should have. But in the ancient world, a lot of temples were modeled after gardens, right? 100%, yeah. So so there was sort of this mirror relationship between the way that you would wall in a sacred garden and the way that you would decorate the walls of a temple even yes. so much so that the pillars would be painted like trees and the, and the yes. ceiling would would look like luminaries and whatnot you'd have animals depicted and so clearly the garden in river run is not going to function in the same way that the garden in uh winterfell does of course yeah. that's obvious but the fact is that here we have winter in winterfell sort of a more ancient culture wherein there hasn't been a move to put the garden inside yet, right? So right. even though the castle's built around the garden, that really functions as Ned's temple. And and yep. Catelyn really is an outsider. And it makes her reminisce about the comfort of her own yeah. temple with the, the crystals and the rainbow colors and the, the smells of oil and whatnot. It just reminds her of how different her system of worship is 
in the South. Yeah. And I think there's this really telling line in that um, that initial chapter, which describes how the River Run Gardens used to actually look quite similar to the ones in the North, but right. all the oak trees and the wirewood trees had been cut down and had been replanted um, with or the, allowing the redwoods to grow. And so right. this is not just, this is a this is a manufactured and cultivated garden that is in the North, that garden is allowed to run wild and sort of participate in the natural growth of, mm-hmm. of, of the way it is. But this is a, a garden that has been cultivated and curated. And that's what she reminisces. She, she feels, you know, she's longing for that, you know, the space. This is the, the garden that we have in medieval romances from the romance right. of the rose and dream visions. And also f- which pulls its influence from Edenic paradise from the Bible. Um, right. Everything is perfect there. I'd like to read this little paragraph. This is, so this is from Catelyn's perspective. A thousand years of humus lay thick upon the god's wood floor, swallowing the sound of her feet. But the red eyes of the weirwood seemed to follow her as she came. Ned, she called softly. He lifted his head to look at her. Catelyn, he said. His voice was distant and formal. Where are the children? So there are two things about that that I thought were interesting. Number one, it gives you a sense of the god's wood. You know, this is really a wild place. In fact, even the, the, the god has red eyes that seem like they follow her. But immediately she's out of place because of her socially domestic placement, right? She walks in, Ned looks up, he's got a very formal voice. And what does he ask her? He says, where are the children? Yeah. Meaning, yeah. Uh, look, this is, this is a man's place out mm-hmm. here and you should be with the children. Where are they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And I think that that circles back to those that opening lines of this chapter where she is, she's meditating on the conditions of domesticity and on right. married life. And absolutely, she is, she's at a place when she goes into the man's world and she goes into Ned's wood. Right? It is a right. place that is not cultivated. It is not manufactured and it is not created in the way in which you know, her garden at home, which is sort of a, a space created by men for women is. Okay. So guest choice, do you want to, we already talked a little bit about setting and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's your, here are your choices. Do you want to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or do you just want to climb the ladder of chaos? Well, I mean, you know, I always love anytime you offer the option for chaos, like that's for sure very, very tempting. Um, I I do want to talk about, I think, two things in chapter one for sure. And one of them is it, we see it in chapter two and chapter three, but kind of the use of kennings. And this is this is an Anglo-Saxon, Old English uh, form of linguistic you know, construction that I, I think it's used here. I want to talk about the significance there. And I do want to talk about the old gods versus the new, because this is, you know, right, this is the first, one of the first early chapters. And so right from the get-go, they're setting the stage and saying that this is a tension and that is a theme that's going to be really, really critical to understanding both the interaction between the characters, the movement, the plot, everything um, about this text is sort of centered in this, the, this tension between the old and the new. Absolutely. And North and South in the sense that, and actually this is a great, this is a great little trope for fantasy literature is that you need a character that's new to the world, right? Mm -hmm. So this is done in a lot of different ways. You can have, you know, you can time travel or you can send a character into a different, you know, realm or whatever. But in this case, what we have is Catelyn is the transplant. So Mm -hmm. she's seen um, Winterfell with the eyes of a Southerner, right? Mm-hmm. So that allows the reader to be introduced and see things that, you know, someone like Ned would simply take for granted. Yeah. And I think fantasy swings both ways. So it's either you have someone from the 
from the contemporary moment going into the past, mm-hmm. or more often than not, you have a figure from the present going, you know, zooming off into the future. And this blends both of them in typical Martin style, where you have a, a character, or a figure from the present who goes, stays in the present, but goes back into a world that is informed and deeply entrenched in the the lore of the past. And so it's this collision of kind of like yes. new religion. And instead of instead of having an old religion rise up and you know, instead of having a I think it's an important stylistic choice that he didn't have Ned go down to um, River Run, um, but that Catelyn goes up and by going north actually goes back kind of goes back historically in time. Um, and that that seems to be really important. It's a reversal of of, of the sort of the timeline and this the shift that goes along with that. So tell me about Kennings. This is something that's that's new to me and I'm really interested yeah. in this. Okay, so Kennings date back there it's a popular trope that they used in, in old English poetry and Beowulf is sort of the poem that's most known for that. And it's most simple sense, it's a compound word. And and they used it for poetic effect, mnemonic effect, because this was during a time period where most people are illiterate. And so the, the promulgation or the, the telling of stories happened orally. And so you had to be, rem, you had to remind yourself of, of, of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also an era, and this is not to discredit the community, but of kind of a, a fairly limited vocabulary. And so there's only so many ways that you can say God or only so many ways you can say your favorite word, sword. And so a way to mix things up <laughs> was to combine two, two words into a creative compound word. So Kennings in, in like Bela, for example, in some popular ones, they would use the term battle sweat for blood, or they might call someone, or they might refer to a corpse as being raven harvest. And, uh, you know, the king was a ring giver or a ring bearer. Right. And so when we see those all over um, Game of Thrones, you know, even in these early chapters, we've got blood riders, we have godswood, right. you know, which is a, a compound term, even the place names, we have Winterfell, River Run. And so just so I, I'm tracking with you, and I, th- I think I, I am, sometimes in order to create in order to delineate a particular idea or concept, mm-hmm. what you need to do is take two words and push them together to create a compound, but, or does it not always have to be a compound? I mean, usually they're compounds, but I think you're spot on in the sense that by bringing two compound words together and forming a neologism or a new word, essentially what it does is it it highlights and it accentuates that particular term and makes and elevates it. Right. And so, you know, I think when you, when you think about it, Ned's sword, it's called a great sword. Um, and he right. glosses that, or he kind of shortens it to ice. And so great sword is, is, basically saying it's like instead of saying it's the most powerful biggest longest oldest mm-hmm. sword in the planet you know he can kind of combine that term and get and capture that essence in one compound word right right so so certainly great sword and god's wood what what other examples do we see from these chapters blood riders you see blood riders we see king's blood Yes. Um, that also shows up. And so those are, and then also the place names. And so this is the the introduction to those kinds of, those kinds of words. And so I think that just Martin is a, a huge fan of Anglo-Saxon and, and Old English and, and Middle English, both mythology and linguistics. And so right. he's not a dummy, like he knows exactly what he's doing. And this is a very, to me, at least a very conscious way in which he is paying homage to this particular era and kind of that that culture that of which it stands and anything importantly that's also a culture that's experiencing in a moment of transition and flux in between the old gods and the new gods between right. paganism and christianity and so therefore like he signals that the same thing is happening in these chapters where you you have the tension between between the old gods and the new represented between Catelyn and Ned. Well, this is also an element of world building because mm-hmm. clearly I, I mean clearly these characters are 
are speaking a very modern, a very modern English most of the time, right? Yep. And the narrators are, are communicating in very modern ways a lot of the time. But to build, the, the trick is to build in enough of these so that you're hinting at an earlier time period, but you're not doing it so much that you are distracting the reader. Yes, very true. And that is, he, Martin is a master at that. You know, he takes everything from the culture and, um, you know, and the compound words is an easy way to do it. It, it antiquates the text without um, it becoming impossible to read. Okay. So notable introductions in this, mm-hmm. in, in the Catlin chapter. All right. So um, we, we hear for the first time about house words, mm-hmm. reference to Maester Lewin, uh, let, like you mentioned, letters by bird. There's a, there's a reference to sending the swiftest bird to the wall. Um, Godswood, Hartree, Weirwood, and we hear mention of fir- the first men and children of the forest in this mm-hmm. chapter. Uh, the concept of raising the banners. And the first, I think the first reference here to the Mad King Eris, uh, yes. the second. All right, so those would be notable introductions that we hear about in this in this chapter that really, you know, the, all of these things are going to be unpacked over the course of the narrative. Yeah, and there's so much interweaving. I, I think as I was rereading these chapters, I had forgotten how much the... Obviously, there's you know, incest becomes an important yes. thematic point in the second chapter. But you've got this, you know, in, these in sort of incestuous families um, that are that sort of extend beyond the Targaryens. And so you have, you know, Robert Baratheon and Ned are both fostered by the same guy, and then Lord Aaron ends up marrying Catelyn's sister. Right. And so we've got this weird, you know, like intermarriage that's happening there. We've got a brother who's also an uncle or you know, right. a cousin. And then we, I, there's, I also think was struck by the fact that it was mentions that um, when Catelyn and Ned are, are kind of planning for the visit and there's, you know, this the great moment where Ned's just like, oh crap, like, you know, I'm excited to see Robert Baratheon, but you know, he's going to bring Cersei and the kids. And, you know, and there's sort of this reflection about how old and there's this line where it says Bran and Tommen are both seven years old. And sure. you know, so you've, you've got this this really key moment where as those characters, narratives and plotlines begin to play out that really they're, he's setting the stage for these, um, for these families to like live and exist in parallel universes that are going to like intersect. And so that is, you know, that's an important plot point. So Jen, I want to ask three questions, something that you have uh, written, something that you have read and something that you want to read? Those are such great questions. Um, okay, so right now I'm just finishing up an essay on extra illustration. And what that is, is there's this habit, like in the, um, there's medieval manuscripts and you know beautifully, beautifully illuminated manuscripts, all sorts of decoration. And what happened in the 19th century is that there were so many of them sitting around that people just started cutting them up randomly. And then they would take all the illuminated letters and the decorations and the pictures and they would put them into scrapbooks. And so I'm writing, I'm just finishing up an essay about that. You know what? It actually gives me a little bit of comfort to know that these illuminated letters are being, I guess, curated. Would curated be the right word? There's so much um, conflict within medieval studies about what's happening. And this was kind of an historical moment that happened in the 19th century. But you you can either look at the stuff and you can say, oh, this is so sad of what happened. And they've they've destroyed medieval manuscripts and Uh these things are lost forever. But I I actually choose to see it a different way. And I, I think it's this... 
it's a cultural moment where they've taken something that for them had lost its utility. No one's going to pull out and read mm-hmm. this manuscript anymore or use it in the church. And so they're trying to find a new way to make it meaning. And I think for me, it's, it's trying to figure out what that meaning is and that how that how those new creations influence Victorian culture and the way that we think about ourselves and the way that they thought about society. So there's there's lots of interpretive ways in which you can look at Maybe I'm a bad medievalist in that way, but I, I'm, I'm intrigued by them. Well, in a sense... Martin is fiddling with ancient and medieval histories, right? Yes. But he's fiddling in a way that he's consciously, he's consciously subverting them and flipping them on their heads and putting them in a different order and, uh, you know, creating hybrids and whatnot. But, but in a sense, he's opening a door to that world in a way that a few, very few, few people have been able to do it, but he's in order to do it, he's got to really kind of mutilate the thing. That's exactly right. It's a fantastic way of thinking about that. Um, you know, the, the mutilation and the destruction of an object or an idea or a text doesn't necessarily mean that you're stripping of its meaning. It actually can serve as the gateway or the opening up um, mm-hmm. or, you know, of, of new meaning. And so it's, a, it's fascinating what he did and um, kind of a really remarkable accomplishment. All right. So something you've read. All right. Um, I just finished reading The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson. Mm. And so this is maybe a seemingly strange book to be on a sort of casual reading list of a medievalist, but I'm interested in mythology in general. And mm-hmm. so much of, of what, it, this is a really, really accessible book um, that kind of crystallizes and distills ancient Egypt all the way up from, you know, from there to the Ptolemaic period and around the first or second century in, in a way that I think previous texts have not been able to do. So I think the way that that also kind of intersects with what we're talking about is in, in particular these two chapters is I had forgotten how many or how much of, of ancient Egypt and particularly in the later kingdom intermarriage and incestuous marriage became mm-hmm. uh, so critical to the foundation and the preservation of that of kingship and also ultimately caused its demise. And so you can't read that history without thinking about what's happening with the Targaryens and how incest is, is, is a short-term solution, but it never, ever, ever ends well. I, so what we're talking about is endogamy. Mm-hmm. And this is just the notion that if you're going to choose a, a spouse for your son or daughter, the best place to find these people is among your, your siblings and cousins. That that someone someone in your tribe is going to be able to allow the consolidation of tradition, of uh, systems of worship, and of political power, mm-hmm. right? And it isn't. It's it's a very modern invention that endogamy is taboo. Now, of course. Brother and sister marriage has been taboo in a lot of different cultures, but it seems like there have been royal families of of lots of different cultures that have basically gone against that taboo. Yeah, I mean, as early or as more as more recent as the mid 20th century, cousins marrying each other in the U.S. was not necessarily taboo. You know, you that's, married. That's exactly right. Right. You married who was closest to who lived down the street, but also, you know, if you got the family farm, there's no succession crisis if it's all in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, yeah. and Downton Abbey, right? Yep. Downton Abbey is a great example of this. It, it, the season, the first season of Downton Abbey, is basically a, a showcase of endogamy. All right. So something you have. Uh, so we did something that you're writing. Something that you read. Something you want to read. So 
you know, I've got a stack of books on my nightstand, um, kind of waiting to be read, waiting for the semester to be over. Um, but one of the ones that's sort of at the top is Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror. And it's a collection of essays. She's an essayist and culture critic from the New Yorker. And she's super young and but just insanely smart and just writes so well. Um, and, you know, a lot of her essays are really, really funny, but they're also really pointed. She takes on issues of race and class and gender a lot. And so she came out with a short story collection that quickly vaunted itself into the New York Times bestseller list in, uh, last year. And I uh, have read sections and excerpts of it, but I haven't sat down to sort of read it from start to finish. So that's one thing I'm really looking forward to over spring break, which is next week. And so I'm hoping that I can get a hold of that and make my way through that. Okay. Book differences show differences. Mm-hmm. So with the Catlin chapter, d- did you notice anything that's different about the the way that Martin narrates the story versus the way that the show did? I can only think of one key difference. Well, what did you notice? I, the weirwood tree has red eyes. Okay. <laughs> that's a very specific thing to hone in on. I was really going, I was really trying hard to find it because I think that they, the show did a really good yeah. job of capturing the essence of that particular chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, Catelyn's character is going to, uh, we're going to eventually see that Catelyn's character is going to be changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. What motivates her is going to change mm-hmm. dramatically. But I think that the sense of the weirwood tree being foreboding something that yeah. that is scary scary in the same way that the the dothraki are scary to to danny oh that's interesting yeah i i like that a lot i would say you know the book is it, that, that i'm biased of course as a literary scholar so i would say the book's always better but the one thing that that the book does do is it allows you to get into the psychology uh, in, into her brain in a way in which you don't get quite when you're animating something on on television. And the one thing that I really loved about the book was the softening, at least in that early stage, about her her relationship and her you know she she feels resigned and she is um at, like I used the term earlier about like at peace with mm. being in the north and in the show I think it, it doesn't quite she comes almost as being a little bit of a brat and a little bit you know grumpy yes. and kind of constantly uh you know irritated with her family and mm. and and I think that that the softening in the text is actually really helpful as making her a likable character. Um, I think that the showrunners repeatedly push her into sort of a typical wife um, mold where I don't think Martin does that nearly as much. I I mean, not to say that Martin's innocent of this, but I think I see it more in the show than I do here in the book. Yeah. She's a resentful housewife in the, in the show. And that that doesn't really, (laughs) and you know, in a sort of the quintessential like mama bear mother Uh who you know only cares about her own children. I think they really play up that kind of the favorites and how she, how she dislikes John. And we'll see this later on, which is, it's much more nuanced in the text. Yeah, I think so too. Okay. One last question. Yeah. Um, All right. So a character in the story, and this could be from any chapters, Mm a character in the story for whom you most identify. And then secondly, the character who your friends and family think that you might most identify. Um, 
We can, we can, oh my cut, gosh. This, we can okay. cut this out if it's too personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So I, I can actually say, so I actually teach a class at Rollins called Game of Thrones. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I taught it for four or five years. I retired it last year when the, you know, the season ended, but it was, uh, you know, it was not a Game of Thrones appreciation class, but it was basically a medieval literature class that sure. was the, where, where you kind of use Game of Thrones as a shtick in order to kind of investigate the source text. And so, we've all done it. Yeah. yeah we've you all done, you need right. that hook, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need the hook. And, and so, you know, my students have consistently, I mean, kind of as a joke, but it, it, it's sort of been pervasive that they, you know, they call me mother of dragons. And so like, I have all sorts of crowns in my office and I have all sorts of things. And I think it's nothing to do necessarily with like physical resemblance, although I am a blonde, but it has everything to do with just kind of being, as my students say, just like, you don't mess with her. Right. And, uh, <laughs> it, you know, and I, and I take that with kind of a badge of pride, right? It's just like, I'm, I'm sweet and kind sure. until I'm, until I'm not. And so I think that that's sort of this like running joke that yeah that, that we love and then i think the character that i i most identify with I think that maybe cir- circles back and dovetails really nicely with which which the way we started is that it's hard to pick one because this all of the characters are meant to have attributes of of humanity and us that we can recognize and so when i was reading these opening chapters again i was thinking like oh my god like i am living the life of catelyn right um, you know on so many <laughs> levels um and so like, here I am, you know, this is me. And then, you know, and then you read and you simultaneously was, you know, like looking back and you're like, I am Jon Snow. I am the outcast from my family. And even though I am, I am not, I'm clearly the black sheep that nobody loves and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and so I, th- I think it, at any given moment, you know, the, the psychology of where you happen to be at that particular moment when you're reading a chapter is, is who you tend to resonate with. And, and that's one of the reasons why, like you said, you're obsessed with it, why I'm obsessed with it, why everyone's yeah. obsessed with it, just because it, it kind of has this ability to without drawing in the religion, but you brought it up. So I guess I'll do it. It's like kind of, it's kind of like a Bible in that sense. Like it, it definitely does, you know, serve as a master text for, yeah. for governing a culture. And, um, and he does, Martin does an amazing job of, of replicating that. You can hear the second part of my interview with Dr. Matthews next week when we cover chapter three, that's Danny's first POV chapter. And now for a very superficial conversation about the HBO adaptation, episode two. The King's Road. I'm with comic Steve Osborne, the Bay Area's fastest and... <laughs> sure. Super fast. <laughs> what, do you, what do you want to be? Uh, to be super fast or invisible? Oh, that, wow. Um, now, here's the thing. Like, am I super fast or am I just faster than I am now? Because that would just mean that I'm probably as fast as I used to be. You're faster than any dog. Oh, any dog. Any dog. Yeah, <laughs> you find me a dog that's fast. That's how I make money. That's right. I'm like, I bet you I'm faster than your dog. This is the fastest dog. I don't know why this particular person has this accent, but uh, it's a, a Russian who's breeding greyhounds. I would. Yeah, think. it shows just how global this has become. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if you are a superhero, then you know your chief nemesis has to come from Russia, right? Right. And it's easy for me to get to Russia with me being able to run so fast. <laughs> I mean, faster than any dog. It's faster so than, any faster dog, than yeah. a car. Well, I don't know. We don't. We, <laughs> I might be underselling it when I say I'm faster than any dog. <laughs> if I go out there and I say I'm faster than any car, as soon as that word gets out, they're like, well, of course you could beat my dog. But like, if I can just keep it at the dog level. Steve, you're an animal person. You, your family, in fact, you guys are super duper animal people. Yes, we aren't. We probably don't have the amount of animals that we used to have at our peak, but uh, we're we're certainly trying to get back there. Yeah. Well, and I think of you. I think of you as a dog person. Yeah. 
Is that right? Would I be right? I would say that is that is accurate. And I did not grow up with dogs. I didn't particularly like dogs. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't have a lot of contact with dogs. Okay, and so if the Osbournes were to have a house sigil, um, like the Starks have the direwolf as their sigil. Sure. And the Baratheons have a stag. What would the Osborne house sigil be? I'm assuming it would be some sort of dog. Yeah, and it would have to be hypoallergenic, what with my allergies. So right. would, already, I feel like in in the in the all these kingdoms were like ripe for attack. <laughs> <laughs> you're anytime, you're like some the, sort of doodle. But you are the Shepu family. The sigils of Maltese. <laughs> all right, so you're a dog person, and so I would imagine there are a lot of Game of Thrones fans that are really connected, like maybe irrationally connected to these direwolf pups, so much gotcha. so that. They will cry. These fans, they will cry about the dire, whether for joy or for sadness or whatever. Um, these, just the idea that they're just weeping just, every time a dire I wolf. Am, I am not kidding. If these dire wolves don't show up in an episode, there will be a thousand people complaining online that <laughs> there was not a dire wolf in the show. And this, <laughs> this particular episode is dire wolf heavy. So we should it is talk about. Heavy. Yeah, we should talk about the dire wolves. I'm starting to pull back a little bit. I'll be honest. With well, you. I mean, that not that the same with anything that anyone cares about? There's always a group of fans that are just going to take it to the next level. And, and I think that that's part of what makes it fun. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, it's funny because, uh, you know, there was, there was the uh, domestication of the Dothraki. It felt like the whole oh. thing was about you know uh, what happens when you're bringing something wild into into a a supposedly civilized situation right okay wait 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 you're back up there say more about domestication of the dothraki uh well sexually speaking right i mean the dothraki is very his what's his name uh Cal Drogo, man, come Cal on. Cal Drogo, hey, look, man, I'm I'm doing my best. Well, I should I should just say Drogo. Call is his title. Gotcha. He's like chief or king or something. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Drogo, uh, or medieval Drago, he, uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's all about he's all about. Let's be honest, doggy style is is his thing. And I mean, we have a direwolf heavy episode, and then she she turns him around, and so I think that there's something. Definitely uh, working thematically throughout this episode. I had never made that connection. Boy, you know what? That English degree at Sonoma (laughs) State. Damn. I mean, I always underestimate Sonoma State for a variety of reasons. And here's the funny thing about the direwolf. The direwolf actually caused a lot of problems because uh, husky sales, sales of the the husky breed uh, went up quite a bit as a response to game of thrones is yeah that and true hu- that is that is true and huskies are not easy dog to raise they they're, they're they take a lot of work my wife being a dog groomer has had multiple clients that help they just had huskies and it was all part of the the game of thrones right. um, fandom and it's just and they're usually very difficult to to deal with and it's it and this may seem silly but uh this is similar to the chihuahua craze after beverly hills chihuahua became very popular uh, and aha, the, the taco okay. bell commercials yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now you said the word husky which makes me lament the passing of kenny rogers for some reason. Yeah, it seems, yeah, it's, he was, well, his beard, his beard was very much the same pattern as a husky. He was really the husky of the CMA music scene. 
I would, yeah, I would say so, right? I mean, whereas Michael McDonald would be the husky of maybe the classic rock or pop genre. <laughs> All right. So back to the Osborne House sigil. You, you think maybe a Maltese? It would be, it would be Michael McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> the house sigil is <laughs> just <laughs> Michael McDonald. The, the Surprisingly hypoallergenic early, Michael McDonald. <laughs> early Michael McDonald or later Michael McDonald? Uh, I'd say mid Right, so so peak form, Michael. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like so, right when he was right at that phase where he was uh, doing background on every song and and adding value, like Dabney Coleman in every movie. So, so, so sigils are supposed to be both kind of supernatural and aspirational. I think that <laughs> check and check. Yes, peak Michael McDonald, the, the voice of an angel. Check. Oh my goodness, yeah. And aspirational. I mean, could you get more aspirational? I don't. I don't think you could. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's something special. Like, I mean, he's not going to. I mean, I don't know how protective he's going to be, but man, is he going to make your harmonies rock? All right. So the direwolves are a big deal in this particular episode. Yes, they are. Real big deal. And they they're causing problems. Yeah, they're, I, are they causing problems? Or are they just complicating things? I think they're complicating things. Certainly, they are. Uh... It's it's of no fault of their own, right? No, no, and they're complicating things, not necessarily for bad, right? Well, okay, so let's imagine a scenario where Ned doesn't allow the kids to bring home the, the wolf pups. Sure. So I An guess al alternate Game of Thrones universe. Alternate, yes, exactly, alternate universe. The whole King's Road episode doesn't really happen okay well i mean they were i mean the dire wolf comes in and and bites uh what's the ugly kid uh oh joffrey uh, yeah yeah okay yeah uh you think yeah, he's ugly? you think joffrey's ugly oh he's repulsive do you think he has a slappable face uh no i don't want to touch it <laughs> Because I think Tyrion slaps Joffrey like three times. Oh yeah, that's that to me. I I think I watched that scene probably like seven times. So you, so you don't mind if someone else slaps his face? You just don't want to touch it. No, 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 no. Absolutely, yeah, I don't want to touch it. I would gladly, I would gladly slap that child with Peter Dinklage. His face looks like it's both upside down and inside out somehow. Yeah, and and oddly attractive. I, I don't I don't know why All you're right. calling him ugly. Uh, you and I definitely have different tastes in princes. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> uh, all right. So you think that Joffrey is going to be a problem no matter what? Well, yeah. So, I mean, he was going to 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 do bad things. And then the dog, I mean, the, the direwolf, sorry, stopped it, right? I mean, that's, and then that created, a, that, that cascaded, you know, a new, a new set of mm, problems. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so you're an animal person, right? I am an animal person. Have and you ever did, did Tyrion have sex with with dire wolves? Is that was that the implication at the beginning of the? I'm not going to give it away, man. I'm going to ruin right. the, the right. next episode. Ooh. All right, have you ever had to put down a beloved beast by your own hand? By my own hand, like Ned does with Lady. No, I have never. Uh, well, I. <laughs> Uh, I did drown a puppy when I was young. Oh, well, that I'm moving I'm learning, on. I'm moving on. <laughs> this is explaining so much of our relationship. <laughs> I was with my neighbor and she had a new puppy and we were giving it a bath in a bucket. And I don't know the recall the exact 
situation and how we got to where it was, but there was eventually, you're drowning my puppy, you're drowning my puppy. And then my mom ran over from the next house and um, performed uh, life-saving measures, uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. This uh, can be done on a canine? Yep. Save the dog. And I... Oh. Uh, I'm so glad that this story ended this way. You were about to, your career as a comic was about to end just then. <laughs> well, I mean, keep in mind, I mean, I didn't save the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If if it was up to you, there'd be a dead puppy on your hands. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, at 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 best, I'm the Stockton to my mom's Malone. <laughs> so I I once had to kill a beloved animal using the advice of your brother-in-law, Matt. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. That had uh, to that had to involve like nunchucks or something. So we had a pet. So my daughter had a pet rat, and mm. long story short, the rat got really old and broke its back because it was Oof. dropped, and so it was time to put the the rat down. I, I I just didn't have the stomach for it. And then what Matt suggested is, and this actually worked out really well. It was a shoebox with an exhaust pipe oh, yeah. sized hole. Yeah. And I you know, set it up on a five-gallon bucket, and basically I just euthanized the, the rat. I wouldn't be surprised if you got that from uh, my wife. That was her preferred rodent uh, killing yeah. method. Well, I'm glad that we, we now have the, the memory tree established. <laughs> that was her preferred method for what? Uh, disposing of uh, rodents. Well, it, it worked. It worked. And we buried it. We had a nice little ceremony for it. Oh, that's, that's pleasant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we've pretty well covered uh, the King's Road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing else really happened, right? Steve and I would love to hear from you. You can email to book at baldmove.com. Any questions or comments related to anything we've discussed or anything related to season one of Game of Thrones. And now here's a short snippet of my conversation with Chad Carmichael. One question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go for it. I want to know if you think there's a chance that Martin, who really seems like a guy who likes to have his fun, may change the story so that it turns out that the whole mystery of the parentage of Jon Snow and him ending up being a Targaryen and all of that, um, could he change that at this point? Okay, there's three answers. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm so glad I asked. The first answer is he cannot cha- he cannot do anything because he cannot finish the books. All right. So th- <laughs> that's the first answer. Oh my gosh. So so any power that he might have to rewrite the HBO adaptation uh, fails him because he simply failed. I think you need to forgive finishing the books, George. I'm just hey, I'm not saying that that's the only answer. I'm saying that's <laughs> one of three answers. <laughs> Okay. Answer number two is that I think he probably intends to finish. And in that intention, he intends to tell his story in the way that satisfies him most. And clearly that isn't going to simply be writing fan fiction of these, these, these television shows. Yeah. So in other words, if he, if he liked every choice, that Benioff and Weiss made in the adaptation, that would that would solve a lot of problems for him. He it would just he would just write what they wrote, sure. and he would have every beat measured out, and he just fill in the gaps, and he'd be done. Clearly, that's not what he wants to do. Yeah, 
so he said that the ending is going to be similar and different, which is sort of an unknown answer. I think the third answer is that Martin is kind of stubborn and committed to certain plot twists, certain key conclusions to certain characters. And those are sort of unwavering. Like, I think he is determined to make sure that John's parentage is known and that's significant to the plot. I don't think he would change something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to change Danny's character arc. I think that he's just going to make it a lot more complex than, than the show runners were able to make it. So those are my three answers. What do you think? Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think that uh, he probably finds it a little bit disappointing that this really well-crafted mystery, you know, got kind of got ended up getting revealed before he got to write the books. And um, well, okay. Yeah. But he's probably more upset with himself I, I mean, he at least yeah. he should be. Sure. He should be more of upset with himself. There's, it's got to have occurred to him whether he wants to change it and still surprise everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it must. It must. Yeah. I would. If it were me, Yeah, I would absolutely give you an alternate ending to this thing because it would sell more books. Sure. Yeah. People would be like, oh, I have to see how that happens. And in addition to that, when they re- end up remaking this as an animated series in 2050 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, it, you, people are going to want to watch, oh, well, I, I really want to see something that's more authentic. Sure, yeah. Interesting. So I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. So such cynical calculations. I don't, I don't know that he's a, such a cynical, calculating guy. Well, I used to think that he was cynical and calculating. I used to think... Don't he's not going to publish the books until the final season because that would allow him to to occupy the throne in cultural popular currency for as long as he could, and then publish the next book as soon as the final season is released. I was clearly wrong about that. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now for this week's bird's eye view. For this week's bird's eye view, I'd like to talk to you about a pet theory that I have that relates to Ned's connection to Druidism. This is more fully fleshed out in chapter one of my book, Gods of Thrones. First, a disclaimer. I'm not going to argue that Martin had all of this in mind when he was creating Ned as a character. Uh, This is just a connection that I've seen between Ned and the world of animism and druidism that interests me. And maybe we reconsider whether or not Ned could have made different decisions based on this information. Okay, try this on for size. Ned's connection to the sacred, and I'm not saying religion because I think that's anachronistic here, but Ned's connection to the sacred involves praying to a special tree. We find him sitting in prayer in a sacred grove, and the idea here is to be nearer to his tree spirit deities. Okay, so in my view, Ned is clearly a druid analog. 
This much, at least, is a conscious effort by Martin. The syncretism of the old gods with the newer faith of the seven looks remarkably like the interface between Celtic worship after the infusion of Christian colonization. The Druids, for example, were so closely linked to the natural world that trees became fundamental to their worship. The etymology of the word druid links to the word for both tree and true. This is just another way of saying that tree and true are the same word in Anglo-Saxon, trio. So we could say that druid is a person of truth, or we could say, more literally, a druid is a man of the oak. By the way, I'm not saying anything here about modern druidry as a religion. I'm speaking only about the medieval mindset. So Anglo-Saxon, the same word for tree is the same word for true, and this fits Ned rather well. He is a man devoted to trees. He's also a man devoted to the truth. In other words, Martin sets up Ned as a man woodenly committed to truth-telling, perhaps to a fault. Of course, Ned does perpetuate a few noteworthy falsehoods, but his default setting as a Stark makes him especially ill-suited for Southern politics. I think Martin is foreshadowing this very early in the story by connecting Ned to tree worship. All right, so this is kind of a loose connection here. We're talking about etymology. Etymology does not tell us everything that there is to know about, let's say, Celtic worship. But it is interesting to note that sometimes the idea behind words makes it into the folklore of a culture, and we happen to have a case of that for this time and place. A story from Scottish lore shows the connection between trees and truth in the medieval mind. This story is often referred to as Thomas the Rhymer. This is based on a 13th century poet. This is actually a historical guy. He was known as being a prophet. But the story here is mythological. So in the story, Thomas meets the Queen of Fair Elfland under a fairy tree. If you're keeping score at home, Tolkien would be happy to qualify this as a fairy story because it has elves in it. Okay, Thomas uses this fairy tree as a gateway into Elfland, and there he is gifted with a tongue that cannot lie. He also gets a new coat, and wait for it, Steve Osborne, some snazzy green shoes. The gist of it is that there's a super spiritual guy who went through a tree and got supernatural truth-telling powers. He's like a truth-telling superhero. But let's think about this from a modern perspective. It is pretty easy to construe this superpower as being a liability, right? Who wouldn't get in trouble with a tongue that couldn't lie? And what if Thomas tried his hand at the Game of Thrones with an inability to lie? I have no idea if Martin is aware of Thomas the Rhymer. I don't know if he's ever heard the story or if this influenced his creation of Ned. But here's what I'll say. If the story was reframed for modern audiences... I think that Thomas would probably end up a lot like Ned Stark. I think that an inability to lie probably gets you dead real fast. Okay, so what? Well, given what we know about where Ned is headed, his connection to tree worship tells us a few things about his character as early as chapter 2. First, he belongs in the north. There are very few sacred groves in the south, and none like the one at Winterfell. Second, Ned views the world differently than Southerners do. This is underscored with the differences between Ned and Catelyn. Third, Ned is most comfortable with honesty, even when it's brutal honesty, even when it's, it's a harsh reality that you have to communicate to a child. Ned is most comfortable with honesty. In all of these ways, Martin is telling us that Ned will do poorly in the South. I would argue, therefore, that Ned's problem isn't just that he's naive or dull-witted 
Although these are popular accusations against him, I think they are secondary. I think that Ned's biggest problem is that he's rooted in Northern culture and is simply out of his element in the South. And that's all for this week. Next time on Electric Boogaloo. I would say that I am the master of whispers, but I aspire to be the grand master. If there is such a thing as a grand master of whispers, then I mean, that's kind of the best of all worlds. But You know what? I think you're going to like this show. I think that you're going to really like this show.